podcast. My name is Natasha Collins and I am the host and founder of NC Real Estate, which includes its members club for landlords and property investors to come and build profitable property portfolios that completely align with their goals. If you haven't checked out my products yet, head on over to ncrealestate.co.uk. I have so many different resources and programs for investors like you to help you to build that portfolio that you want. Now, today, I am so excited to welcome Ben Elder onto the podcast. Ben is the RICS International Director of Valuation and the IVSC Chair of Tangible Assets Board and member of Overarching Standards Board. This is a fantastic conversation all about valuations, valuation standards with the man who is at the very top of this for the globe, for the world. <laughs> so I'm very excited to have him on the podcast today. As well as that, I first came across Ben years ago, just before I sat my APC and he was heading up an ethics uh, seminar which I went to and then I used the information from within his seminar in my APC that I passed and I actually was talking about Ben in the APC. I said he was the last CPD session that I went to before I came and sat which ensued a very very funny conversation with the panel behind the desk. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation today. I cannot wait to share with you all of the tips and tricks that I've come across from Ben. If you're ready, let's jump straight in. Hi, Ben. Thank you for coming on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Hi, Natasha. Yeah, great pleasure. Um, good to see you again. Um, uh, I'm looking yeah. forward to uh, some difficult questions, no doubt. <laughs> Well, <laughs> got to get to the heart of valuation, mainly as well, because as you know, I'm not valuation surveyor and I have to tell people that a lot because the automatic thing is is that as a surveyor you're a valuer but I am terrible at valuations that was very clear when I was studying for my APC and when I was doing my master's so I've I've left that to the experts like you and I just do the strategy side of things so can we start with the fact that you've had a really impressive career as a surveyor today how did you get to where you are now? Uh, that's a very interesting question. Very kind of you to say I've uh, 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 had an interesting or um, influential career. So, um, yeah, I, it, it, my, my first degree uh, was actually in economics um, way, way back in the 1970s. So uh, a long, long time ago. Um, and um, it, it, But it really sparked my interest in how um, the economy interacts with real estate um, and that, that, that sort of whole process. And um, when I uh, finished my uh, degree in economics, um, uh, I, I sort of moved into the, the real estate sector and um, uh, then was told pretty abruptly uh, if I wanted to stay in uh, real estate, I'd actually have to become a chartered surveyor. Um, and um, in those days, you had to go right back to the beginning again. So uh, I then started a second undergraduate degree uh, in um, real estate and uh, took RICS direct finals. 
Um, and um, yeah, so ended up uh, uh, becoming a charter surveyor, which I'm, I'm immensely proud of. Um, still, not, not not from my achievement, but but being associated with such a great organisation, and uh, particularly the individuals who make up the uh, uh, the the organisation. Um, so yeah, um, quite a bit of a, 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 a sort of um, uh, roundabout route to actually become a charter surveyor. But then once, um, once once I was a, a a member and became fully qualified, became a partner in a company um, operating in the UK. Uh, we actually uh, sold that business to one of the banks, um, and I worked for that uh, organisation for a number of years. But then left to go to Nottingham Trent University uh, as a lecturer. Um, and um, uh, enjoyed that, stayed there for 10 years and then moved on to the College of Estate Management uh, for another 10 years, doing the distance learning side and then moved uh, to the RICS. Uh, so uh, at least four different careers in my, uh, in my lifespan. So um, and, and enjoyed everyone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And for, for all my students who are listening, it's completely possible to not stay in one sector of the built environment, right? We can change around. Oh, absolutely. And and if you told me that uh, when I became a partner in a, in a company um, at the end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s, I, I thought that was my career for the next X number of years until I retired. Uh, but no, there's, there's say there have been four distinct categories to my uh, career and uh, uh, and being a chartered sphere has actually opened the doors um, and, and allowed me to step through some of the, or get the opportunity to step through those uh, th- those doors um, and uh, so, so the variety and the change in the uh, in the way that the market operates um, creates all sorts of opportunities that, that, that are there and again I uh, when when I um, first started practicing, probably the furthest I ever travelled to work to do a, a, a valuation, a, a job was probably twenty, thirty miles either side of uh, the office, because mm-hmm. um, that's that's the way the business operated at that, st- that stage. Uh, whereas um, now, coming um, uh, not towards the end of my career, but getting getting to the, the the other end, that I've had the opportunity to work in almost every country in the world. Uh, so I've certainly worked on all continents, and um, uh, it, the opportunities are phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And you've just got to see them and be brave enough and open the doors and step through the uh, to take the opportunities. Mm-hmm. I completely agree with that. I completely agree. So let's get on to valuations. Um, let's start with what are the standards when it comes to valuations? Is this the same for commercial and residential? Uh, so again, it depends where you are in the world, uh, Natasha, because um, particularly from the UK perspective, uh, there's, there's been this divide between the commercial valuation and the residential valuation. Um, and uh, it's been mainly driven by legislation. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, 
the, the commercial side is still dominated by the Landlord and Tenant Act, uh, which was first uh, introduced in 1954. So it's 65, 66 years old, that piece of legislation. It's been amended mm-hmm. uh, over the years, but principally uh, it's still the same piece of legislation which is, uh, w- w- which is there in place. Whereas the residential markets have been controlled by housing acts. And if you look, there's almost a new housing act every two, three, four years. Um, And so there's this continual change in the way that um, residential is influenced and um, uh, how how it actually comes. If you were cynical, then you might be saying that actually that's to do with uh, people in housing having votes, whereas people who occupy commercial property tend not to have a vote. Um, and uh, so, so you tend to get this political influence into the residential space. Um, it's not quite the same in, in some of the other countries where uh, the, the legislation is more consistent between the, um, uh, the residential space and the commercial. But again, of course, even in the UK now, we're getting that mix of that mixed use side. So the legislation and the, uh, the requirements become more complex, which makes it even more exciting for the, uh, uh, the valuer and the chartered surveyor to be able to unravel some of those, uh, those challenges. Mm-hmm. And so when a, a valuer is, re, is valuing a property in the UK, what standards are they relying on? Yeah, OK. I mean, it, it, it's normally the uh, RICS, the Red Book. Um, it's not legislative. Um, depends what the purpose of the valuation is, uh, because, again, there's some uh, EU legislation which is not clear whether will apply to us or not moving forward. Uh, but it's likely to be mirrored in whatever replaces uh, that, that process. So the, the, the mortgage credit uh, directive, uh, which is which comes out of the EU, basically says that the valuation should be to international national valuation standards, Mm -hmm. the Red Book, or the European valuation standards, um, which are written by uh, Tigova. Uh, But the the RICS adopt the international valuation standards. So RICS set standards for our members. Mm -hmm. We do so through the Red Book. Uh, but the Red Book adopts the international valuation standards. Uh, so um, I, I sit on one of or chair one of the committees for the International Valuation Standards uh, Council. So RICS influence the international standards, but they are set out in the uh, in the RICS Red Book. OK. Um, and so everybody who would be doing a valuation in the UK for mortgage lending purposes would be a RICS Charter surveyor, is that right? It's not. It's not in the law. Oh. Um, but, oh. Uh, but 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 uh, most of the lenders, most of the organisations, um, the, 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 the people providing the funding, um, request a professionally qualified person, and okay. uh, that really obviously to protect their side as well. So it tends to be uh, charter surveyors, and one of the key things. Um, is that they usually require professional indemnity insurance. Um, And unless you are a chartered surveyor, it becomes increasingly expensive to obtain that insurance, if not almost impossible. Um, Because again, the the, the industry needs to measure somebody's performance against um, some sets of of standards. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. 
And so how are valuations standardized so that clients can be sure that they're getting a correct value in comparison to other properties? Because this is something we see going around social media a lot at the moment, and I'm sure my audience will nod their heads to this, where there's a lot of social media posts with investors saying, I've been unfairly valued, this is not the same, but that's not correct. Value is half the value off of a set of standards, right? Value valuers are uh, required to uh, apply the, um, the the standards set in the Red Book for the and the international valuation standards. One of the critical things that a lot of people don't quite understand uh, is that um, the definition of market value uh, is very specific and there's a very specific set of circumstances which the valuer must take into consideration to come to that opinion because that's used as a benchmark across time uh, and asset uh, classes and and uh, you you need you must be um, um, the, the definition of market value talks about having two parties who enter into a transaction without compulsion uh, it's a valuation at the date of uh, the valuation. It's in an arm's length transaction where both parties have acted independently, objectively, uh, and without compulsion. Now, those are a whole set of adjustments then which need to be made to a price which might have been paid. So price and value don't always coincide. And particularly when we get um, challenges like the, uh, the COVID uh, challenge that we've got at the moment, where um, a price that somebody offers or wants to pay may be significantly different to the worth which an individual has of a, um, an, an asset. So, mm -hmm. for example, I mean, if, if you were buying um, a, a piece of real estate in this market, uh, pro probably more commercial and resi because residential's got some other characteristics, um, in, particularly in the UK. But why would you sell when something's very risky, unless you had to at the moment? You would hold that asset until the market normalised. Yeah. If you were buying, you'd probably be saying, I'm not buying unless I get a really good deal. Mm -hmm. You know, so I buy, you know, the valuation might be uh, a million, but actually I'm going to offer 750 because I'm going to take the risk of what happens in the marketplace going forward. Yeah. Uh, so the, the buyer wants a good deal and the seller's under no compulsion to sell at the moment. Once once that starts to change and we get more compulsion in the market to sell because of distress or financial uh, obligations, then that, that those two tend to come closer together. Um, but then is it really market value because somebody's being compelled to sell? So you need to be really careful about what the valuation is that's being commissioned because you can, you can choose the basis of value and the valuer's role is to work with the client to establish the basis of value. And the, and the main ones which you, which you, you get are fi, uh, fair value for financial reporting, mm -hmm. which, which is different from market value and which is also different from investment value. Uh, which is really worth. Um, and then you get synergistic value and a couple of other bases of valuation. But all those are set out in the international valuation standards. And there's a clear definition for each one of those. But 
again, parties need to understand what it is that they are, um, uh, the, the basis of value that's being applied to to their instructions. Mm-hmm. Because this is this this term that flies around, which I think is a little bit meaningless, but it's below market value, and everybody's trying to achieve below market value. Mm-hmm. But if you don't know what market value is. And, and what's below, I mean, the, the role of value is to interpret the market. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's not to make the market. We, we don't make values. The role of the valuer is to give an opinion uh, of the market value under these sets of circumstances, which is, which is clearly set out. And uh, so um, that, that is the opinion of the, mar- of, of the value about the market value on the date that the valuation is made. And set against those criteria which I've already uh, mm-hmm. added in and and the below or above um, so you might get an agent who puts a property on the market or a broker who puts the property on the market um, who's testing the market to see what happens doesn't make the value the value is actually started or made by the transactions which actually occur and then any adjustments which which need to be made to make that fit the definition of market value, if that's the the basis that's being used. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then can I ask you, why is valuation date so important in valuations? Yeah, a good, a good, good, good question again. Because I mean, one of the challenge. I mean, even in in um, I remember a few years ago in a, a a really volatile market where people were talking about putting the time of the valuation onto the um, <laughs> because things change. I mean, yeah. if, you, if you just go back to the uh, uh, to the to the the, the Brexit um, referendum. Um, we're all merrily trading away one day and we re- really everybody expected us to stay in Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then at midnight, the referendum results came out and we were leaving Europe and the market stopped. So if you were the unfortunate one doing a valuation just before the vote and the market assumption was everything's going to continue as previous. That's fine. Those are the assumptions. You've made those and you've done due diligence on your work at that point. But by the next morning, things have completely changed, completely. And so that's why the date is so, so important um, to to the uh, actual valuation, because it's when decisions are uh, are based on those those processes. Mm -hmm. So you can say at this specific date and time, this was the value, but 24 hours later, the value of your property might have just... Could be completely. I mean, just I mean the uh, I, again going back. I, I remember when um, um, I bought my, my first house, and you know, we sort of interest rates were about fifteen percent. I mean, that sounds enormous to you guys now, but about fifteen percent. Uh, and the UK were in the European uh, Monetary Exchange system, uh, and um, we the pound got pushed on put under severe pressure. And the uh, we actually left, and but before we left the ERM, uh, the Chancellor moved the interest rates about four times in one day. And if I remember correctly, they got up to about 24, 25 percent. 
uh, and the uh, might that might be a bit of inflation too much. So, but I can't remember the actual numbers, but I can remember coming out of meetings that I was in, and all of us sitting around having a coffee, saying, "Well, we may as well throw in our keys. We can't afford to pay the mortgages anymore." Um, you know, and and that would have created a, a real downflow in values because it's, it's supply and demand. Mm-hmm. Um, and if again, if, if, if interest rates move or jump so quickly, uh, that, that causes a shock to the marketplace mm-hmm. and, and affects people's decisions. Is there a margin of error in valuations? It's an opinion. The definition is an opinion of value. And, and again, a valuer has to be able to justify that opinion. Mm-hmm. So um, in my records, in my notes, uh, 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 valuers are very good at making adjustments and very good at coming to their opinion. Sometimes they're not quite so good at recording their uh, their opinions uh, and I, I again I found it really helpful to sort of put um, you, you, you know mind bubbles mm-hmm. you know sort of on, on the side of my notes which sort of would say well this is why I've done that so I might want to change the uh, I don't know if I'm doing the discounted cash flow if I want to move the the, uh, the interest rate from eight and a half to nine percent uh, it, it makes a big difference at the end of my valuation. But the real question is, why did I want to change it? And remembering in four, five, six, seven, maybe 10 years time about why on a Monday afternoon um, you change uh, an interest rate from X to Y uh, is really challenging. Mm-hmm. So you need to record that process um, and and make a rationale for it because you you can be sued for your negligence you're not sued for your professional opinion okay so the negligence okay. side of things is not keeping notes not keeping notes the, 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 the trouble in the uk is that most valuers who are successfully sued have not been negligent but they just can't prove that they weren't interesting so they 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 probably done a pretty good job but they can't prove how they took all those steps Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh if it does get to court then uh it's a pretty um unpleasant process that 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 is that, that, that you're facing uh, and if you've got a nice file with all the details nicely set out um, and how and why you did things, then, um, I mean, the first question from the barrister, and it's certainly in the UK, would be, uh, Mr. Elder, you are, um, uh, you're a member of the RICS. Uh, the RICS set valuation standards for you. Um, can you tell me whether your valuation followed the full details set out uh, as required in the RICS standards? Mm-hmm. Um, and they will want a yes or a no, not a well, maybe on page twenty. They'll, you know. Um, and then if I say, well, I'm not really sure what the standards were at that date, you're starting to to remove your credibility. So, sort of making that really clear about um, uh, that you are a member of the RICS, you know about the valuation standards, and this is how you've actually followed the process. Uh, to, um, to to deliver and be able to demonstrate it. 
Uh, I used to tell students um, uh, when I was at the college and at uh, Nottingham uh, that being a value was a bit like being Sherlock Holmes mm-hmm. uh, in that you had to go out into the marketplace and find evidence. Uh, but it wasn't just evidence to show you what the the outcome would be. It was evidence that would probably or may have to stand up in a court of law. Yeah. So, you know, nobody nobody wants to get there. But no. uh, if you're the unfortunate one, uh, then uh, it's uh, very comforting if you've got the uh, the processes and the procedures behind you. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's a very good tip, and it's also very good to know that. valuers will be going out there with a huge amount of experience so everybody listening valuers don't Mm. just go out there and value (laughs) willy-nilly they do Mm. actually have a methodology behind them so how have valuations changed since covid19 and i guess then we need to also ask how how do you see valuations changing in the run-up to brexit because we still haven't got a deal nope certainly haven't um the, the, the COVID um, created two problems for the valuer, both in the commercial and the residential space. Uh, one was that you physically couldn't inspect. Mm-hmm. So uh, all the normal processes of gathering information to undertake your valuation uh, stopped. Um, and secondly, data stopped flowing as well because uh, the sort of knock-on effect of people not doing deals. So all the normal data sources um, stopped, mm-hmm. or if they didn't stop, they certainly were very, very substantially reduced. Um, the Red Book um, was tested severely at that particular point to see whether uh, it was uh, robust enough or whether we needed uh, to get new standards, new regulations. But it actually stood up really well, which I'm, I'm really quite proud of. Uh, not not from because I wrote it, but because um, colleagues of mine have, have, have contributed for, for many years. Um, but the, the, the Red Book was able to accommodate the changes and basically what it said was, well, if you can't inspect, then you need to agree with your client about what you are going to rely on and what you're going to make assumptions on. Mm-hmm. And as long as it's clear and agreed with your client that you wouldn't be able to go and inspect, but you did a, an inspection of this property 12 months ago, and therefore you're going to use your 12-month-old records to give the basis, and you're going to ask the security guard to hold the uh, iPhone or Samsung or whatever the model you happen to, to have uh, to um, to do some form of inspection to check the, uh, uh, the, the, the state of the building. If, if that was all agreed with your client and your client understood the risks, then that was fine to move forward on those bases. And, and that's what started to happen um, uh, in some of the valuations that, 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 took, that took place. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the Red Book is all about creating a transparent process. It's, yeah. it's, it's about everybody understanding what's what's going to happen and getting those agreed before you start and then moving into delivering. Uh, The second part was then the data uh, and um, uh, the the, the reduction in data for making decisions on. And that's where the material uncertainty clause uh, came in, in that the uh, valuation uncertainty clause isn't issued by the RICS. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's the 
individual valuers who make that call whether to include a material uncertainty clause or not. Um, but the RICS provide a standard set of words that if you are going to um, uh, implement a material uncertainty clause, you might want to consider using these, these words uh, because they provide the market with a consistent set of words and help the, uh, the market to understand um, uh, what the position is. But uh, material uncertainty clause is uh, only used when something has happened that we know the market's changed. Mm -hmm. But we don't know how the market's changed yet because the evidence hasn't started to flow. Okay. So we again, we know that yesterday things were normal. Today, something's happened. The valuations are unlikely to be the same. The market activity is unlikely to be the same. Therefore, something significant's happened. Mm -hmm. Every valuation contains some uncertainty, yeah, because it's an opinion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is this is material uncertainty. This is this is something which has materially happened, which has changed the market significantly. Mm -hmm. um, so, so the data points have changed. But again, we were able to turn to our ICS publications, and uh, last year, or it may have been the beginning of the year before, we issued uh, some guidance on comparable evidence. Um, and within that, we give a hierarchy of recommended um, sources of evidence uh, when you're undertaking evaluation, and all of those stand up through this, this pandemic. So we were able to point people to that as a, a guidance note. Uh, and it's got a list of um, the types of evidence that you can use. And again, sort of the, 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 towards the bottom of that list was negotiated deals, not deals that have been completed, but, but transaction deals which are partway through. Uh, and as long as you make it transparent that, that you know, you've been through this list, and there isn't any of this evidence, there's none of that evidence, there's none of this evidence. Ah, the first level I can get is this. And that's what I base my valuation uh, on. Because uh, when valuers need to be able to value in different difficult times, that's, mm -hmm. that's what we're good at. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not easy in normal times. It's never easy. But it's probably easier when times become difficult like this. This is really when valuers um, need to step up to the mark and, and do because the value the, we provide such important information to the marketplace. We are, we are central to the majority of decisions which business people, individuals, governments make uh, every day. And we're providing that base evidence which moves into helping those people make better decisions mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and do you think that's going to change for Brexit I, I we, don't know. we don't nobody, nobody knows is it? <laughs> but it, it's a dynamic situation it, it always has been but sometimes things move quicker than the other uh, if you're asking me for a prediction I think that valuers will be using multiple data points moving forward okay um, perhaps rather than the uh, accumulation of um, data there will there'll be lots of very specific uh, data uh, and we'll get new um, points of reference, um, particularly in the environmental field. I, I, that's where I think that the, the big changes are starting to come. Uh, and so we'll be more explicit about um, particular elements of value rather than just mm -hmm. the total value. Moving forward, 
quite a long way to go, but um, uh, we've, we're already seeing clients demanding that extra um, commentary on how the valuation has been uh, assembled. Interesting. And just to go back to market uncertainty, you said before we started this podcast that clause has now been lifted as of Friday. Is that right? Yeah, on the on the residential, on residential um, in the okay. in the UK. In the UK. So in the UK. Seventeenth yeah. of July. Uh, yes, whatever Friday was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they all mould into one. When you're working from home, they all mould into one, I'm afraid. Uh, so, that yes, that was uh, – and, and again, if, you, if, if there's a whole commentary on the website. If, if, you, if you want to uh, uh, look at the uh, RICS website or um, just, just Google um, uh, RICS COVID Hub, and there's a whole list of um, uh, uh, background information for um, all, all areas of surveying, but particularly valuation, um, where the material uncertainty clause is fully articulated and uh, a list of um, uh, the way that the assets have been, um, again, RICS are not making that decision. We're reporting that the industry now feels there's enough data points to remove the material part of the uncertainty clause. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's positive. Things are moving in a healthier direction, shall we say. Yeah. Yeah, we might not like the values. I mean, we're not saying the values are all, we're trying to get to the same level of value. But what we're saying is that numbers reported um, uh, can start to be relied on in the way that, they norm, that normal valuations are. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, that's good news. We need good news in this, <laughs> this climate. Can I ask about down valuations? I see on yeah. social media huge, huge amounts of comments about surveyors downvaluing properties for lending purposes. Do surveyors downvalue properties? And if so, why would they do it? You know, why would you do it? Your, your job is to interpret the marketplace as a valuer. Uh, we don't get paid extra for downvaluing. Uh, you, you know, there's, there's, there's no really less risk involved in, in downvaluing. Uh, I think, as I said earlier on, there's a specific definition for market value. Uh, and uh, the, the valuer needs to be able to demonstrate how they've come to their conclusion. Um, so, uh, again, it's about a market value. You need more than one purchaser who would proceed at that price mm -hmm. or at that level. Um, just because one property is sold to a particular individual doesn't make that the market value. Mm -hmm. So, um, if, for, for example, um, uh, if there's, um, I don't know, if, if somebody, if, if, if the house next door to me came up for sale uh, and, and I wanted to move um, a relative into, uh, into that property, I might pay more for it than uh, the market would normally expect. And if, if the, the seller, the vendor knows that, then they're going to adjust the price accordingly. Uh, um, so, but, but then if the bank lent on the premium, I would pay for that uh, piece of uh, real estate and I lost my job and couldn't keep the payments up and they had to repossess and sell, then they would have loaned too much money on that. Mm 
Mm-hmm. So, or likely to have loaned too much money and therefore wouldn't be able to recoup because nobody else would pay that premium. So, again, there's that, that's why uh, the, 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 the uh, market value definition um, talks about having the, the more than one person wanting to buy at that, that, um, at that level. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. it's a market, it's not an individual. When you're looking at valuations for lending purposes, sometimes you see the 90-day value, the 120-day value, and the 180-day value. And sometimes lenders will then say, we'll only lend on one of these values. And I assume that's due to their risk. Why? What's the difference between this and why do banks do it? Again, it's, it's, it's that issue about... Um, um, uh, surety of uh, of how long the valuation will will last for. I, I actually think it's wrong. I, I don't think it's a great system. I I, I, I think that there, you know there's a there's a valuation and uh, uh, we the, the banks want a surety for the period that that sort of will last. Well, actually, nobody can guarantee that, as we've already explained. Um, so I, I think that it, it, it's a system that's grown up to accommodate um, uh, administrative processes as much as anything, um, which, which is not a great place to be. I accept administrative processes have got to happen, but, but actually um, the, 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 the process of getting a valuation and then asking if something material would change within a period is a slightly different question, you know, and maybe um, uh, there should be a system of confirmation just before the transaction or the loan is taken out. Um, but, But the valuer shouldn't be made to take all the risk of processes moving, moving forward. Um, so the, the uh, and and then it sh- again it depends on the loan to value ratio and a number of other risk uh, orientated um, uh, processes which the the lending institution will go through. Mm-hmm. So it might not there might not even be market value in any of those values. It might be no. market value is here, but this is our ninety day, this is our hundred twenty day, and this is our hundred eighty. Yeah. yeah, and then depends on the bank's risk appetite. Then I, I guess. Absolutely. So, you know, it's, it's a bit artificial. It's not really value because um, you're starting to project values, which you you can um, predictive values. They, they tend to be called under the red book. And you, you've got to get a, a whole modeling system and be able to articulate how you've actually come to that conclusion. Um, because really, you, you, you're doing a risk analysis, which which is fine. Um, valuers often get um, criticised for looking in the rearview mirror. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, looking backwards. At yep. the, but actually, what what they're doing is looking backwards or sideways to gather evidence of what somebody else has paid for future benefits. So it's looking forward. It's not looking backwards. You're looking backwards and sideways to capture data uh, of people looking forward. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, it's a bit of a misnomer to say it's all, it's all looking backwards. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of my final questions is: Why is it important that we're going to have an international to have an international valuation standard? And will there be a value for both? residential and commercial and does this mean that regardless of where we start investing 
around the world we're going everything's going to be valued on the same terms ah good yeah uh, i think there are about three questions in there so yeah, yeah. <laughs> we might as well go through them but uh, yeah what well, why have international valuation standards it is about that benchmarking internationally uh, mm. we might i mean we we tend to still think of borders and countries and um um uh, it's personal view. Uh, I think it's really sad that we've sort of uh, sunk back into some nationalist um, type um, uh, commentary decisions for all sorts of things. Um, uh, I, I think that's that, that's mm-hmm. sad, particularly in a time when we're facing global challenges, both on a, a pandemic front. Uh, but also environmental issues. We actually need to be working closer together rather than separating and fragmenting down to uh, uh, individual decisions. But that, that, that's that's a personal opinion. Um, the uh, the international valuation standards are there to provide a benchmark globally. So that um, just like the international financial reporting standards mm-hmm. are there to create a, a benchmark so that you can p- compare a company's performance in, in the US with the UK, with Germany, with France. Um, uh, they're all slightly different because the US don't adopt IFRS. They use um, uh, US GAAP, but they're pretty close to the IFRSs. And there's certainly not a big translation um, challenge. But the, um, the international standards are there. So the definition of market value, which we've already spoken about, uh, is the same in Sydney, um, Beijing, um, Frankfurt, London, New York, around the globe. So if you, if you ask a valuation expert to produce a valuation to market value under the international financial, uh, sorry, in, under the international valuation standards, they'll be using the same definition to come to their conclusion. Mm-hmm. So it, it then helps the client to uh, be able to benchmark um, their, uh, their, their, their properties more easily. Uh, and, and, and more transparently. Um, so, yeah, I, and as, as there's more and more international uh, flow of funds, um, the, 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 it's going to continue in that way. And one of the interesting things as well is, obviously, uh, I work for the RICS and a member of the RICS, but other professional bodies also adopt the international valuation standards. So, for example, um, HKIS, the Hong Kong Institute of Surveyors, adopt the um, uh, international valuation standards. The Australian Property Institute um, uh, adopt the uh, international standards. Uh, so, again, creating a more transparent process between uh, providers of valuation as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um optimistic for that because if i can start investing globally on with one or two lenders that would be so much more helpful than (laughs) having to prove myself again in another country absolutely absolutely yeah it's that yeah i mean obviously there are the barriers of tax and different different things which which impinge but again that's one of the reasons why with the definition of uh, market value the actual uh, costs of transaction are excluded mm-hmm. um so again that that, that uh, you know and, and tax issues are excluded so going back to your earlier question about why why there might be differences in in numbers people might be doing particular transactions and paying particular prices because of their own circumstances mm-hmm. um so 
you know, again, it, it, st- it starts to impact that that data. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you a quick question on sustainability measures? Are we gonna are we gonna have our properties valued based upon how sustainable they are and environmentally friendly? I, I think we already are in some respects. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think um, the, the piece of research fairly recently undertaken at the RICS, um, and it looked at um, houses across several countries in Europe, residential properties, not, not commercial, residential properties. Um, and the objective was to try and work out what percentage of the value was attributed to the the greenness of the uh, uh, of the property. It was actually very low. It was okay. two or three percent from memory. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but uh, I, I, as we move forward and environmental criteria become more visible, um, I think that that's that, that that starts to impact the. Uh, the, the the value process. I think the big challenge is that in places like the UK, there's such a big stock of old housing that, um, uh, you know, the stock dominates flow. The, 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 the new stuff is pretty low uh, yeah. in, um, in volume compared to the old stock. Mm-hmm. And therefore that sort of dominates the whole process. Uh, I also think that very unfortunately and it's very sad and, and, and you know that sort of things like Grenfell uh, ha- have you know th- th- partly some of the some of the cladding materials that have been put on were put on for insulation reasons for environmental sustainability reasons uh, and obviously with disastrous consequences so again uh, there's, there's there's, there's more rigor in that whole process which is which is required to make sure that uh, places are safe as well as environmentally um, uh, friendly in, a, in an energy use uh, way mm-hmm. I, I, say, I mean again a personal comment it's, not, it's certainly not an RICS view but a uh, personal comment is that while energy is still reasonably cheap to uh, power our houses uh, the environmental um, challenges probably aren't top of the list uh, whereas if you look at what happened to sort of uh, motor cars for example once they stopped um, company car allowances and you found that you had to pay the tax on a big engine car um, suddenly the manufacturers started to bring out more economical uh, vehicles uh, so there's all that sort of tax incentive which isn't really used in the residential space mm-hmm. um, because it doesn't because it tends not to be taxed anyway um, so uh, you know, it, it's, it's really difficult and touchy stuff because obviously again you have to make sure that everybody in society can deal with these 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 challenges as well mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so final question how do you see the built environment coming out of covid19 and then brexit um covid19 um there are going to be some behavioral changes Mm-hmm. there will be uh, I, I don't know what they'll be um, uh, but there, there will be behavioural changes um, working at home but some people wanting to go back to the office uh, some people wanting the social contact there, there, there are a myriad of different um, 
scenarios which you can play out. Uh, and again, going back to the valuation, sort of, I think that's what clients want at the moment is some of the scenarios playing out for them to, to give them the option, particularly in the investment field uh, mm-hmm. of being able to, um, again, articulate why you've, you, you've, you're recommending certain uh, courses of action. Um, but the, the, the COVID will, I think, until there is uh, certainly a vaccine, will um, make people very cautious. And um, maybe there's a reset to some of the buttons that have been sort of built up over a number of years. And um, so I think there'll be a lot of reassessing in in, in that space. Uh, But on the other hand, if you look at the interest rates where they are at the moment and the, the government fundings, wow, um, phenomenal amounts of money mm-hmm. being pumped into the economy. Um, uh, what happens with unemployment will obviously impact. Um, I think one of the really interesting questions for the UK is actually how much of industry ends up in government ownership, what, what's going to happen to the train franchises and all those types of things. Mm-hmm. So is, is there going to be a nationalisation programme by the back door, by default, um, so there's there's a whole range of things which which might um, happen, and we, we've just got to follow those those leads. And I don't think anybody knows the answers to all those at the moment. But certainly, the Charters of Air's job to follow the signs and to read those the, those, those changes as, as as they come into um, fruition, rather than just waiting for them to be impacted and and have happened and become commentators rather than um, uh, leaders in in that space. Mm-hmm. Um, Brexit. Um, wow. Yeah, I mean, that, 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 that was all the worry um, October, November. Then obviously this has sort of been dwarfed into not insignificance, but certainly uh, off the front front page. Uh, it depends on the deals that, that, that get that get done, Natasha. But um, uh, there will be impacts on supply and uh, et cetera of certain materials, I, I would guess. Um, probably only short term, um, because I think that, that there will be mechanisms, just as we found with the COVID, that technology has actually kicked in and allowed us to do things. Mm-hmm. Actually, probably we would all want to have tested for six months before we moved everybody out of the office, but actually, no, we'd got to do it within 24 hours and get on with it. Um, I think there's going to be some of that, which will. Uh, happen. Um, I, I, I think, again, it depends what happens in Europe with uh, how they resolve their economic challenges. Um, so I think there's, there's a whole range of different scenarios. And uh, the, the valuer needs to follow all the data points. And I'm not just talking valuation, but they need to be watching what's happened to the stock market, what's happening. I'm not not saying that dictates, but they need to be yeah. watching those data points. They need to be watching the, the balance of payments. They need to be watching um, uh, the, the retail sales. Um, they need to be watching how much is actually going online. And they need to understand what's happening in their own industries. Mm-hmm. Um, there will be uh, local challenges, um, Rolls-Royce in Derby, uh, 
other other sort of um, you know some some of the employment issues around Heathrow um, are, are going to be quite challenging, but but opportunities um, mm-hmm. for, for for new ways of doing things. But but the value and the the charters there needs to be really on top of all those data points and not sort of sitting back waiting for things to happen and then uh, accepting um, um, looking for a polite way of um, saying the uh, uh, things that have already occurred um, and and, and reporting them. (laughs) Innovation. Yeah. Innovation. Absolutely. Innovation. Ben, thank you for coming on the podcast today. I really, really, really appreciate it. I mean, what an interesting time (laughs) we are in in the property industry. I know for certain things are going to change and just we we keep persevering and seeing what's around the corner. But I'm I'm really intrigued about what 2021 is going to have to hold when the government kind of takes back all of these measures that they've been shelling out so much for and seeing what changes because could be a free-for-all it could be uh, but it could be it could be the other way around that actually uh you know the the the, the market's always been or has been over the last 30 40 years the main way of allocating scarce resources maybe, maybe there are some more um uh, command type uh policies which will be put in place um for for a period and, and uh, it's getting that balance right between allowing the market to dominate uh, against how much regulation you need to put in place to um, control the, the excesses of the marketplace and getting the, uh, the the allocation of scarce resources to, to the appropriate places. Um, it's going to be a challenge. It's going to be change. And not everybody likes change. Uh, and, you know, I think you have to appreciate uh, that and um, uh, but we're in a great position to help and advise people which is uh, uh, very re- rewarding mm-hmm. I, I completely agree with that that's the joys of being a surveyor actually I, absolutely I really enjoy that part of the job really enjoy it yeah Ben thank you I really can't say thank you enough thank you for coming and joining me today I really appreciate it Everybody who's listening, if you've liked this podcast, please make sure that you like, subscribe, leave a, leave a review, because that is how other people find this podcast and can get the goodness out of it too. Thank you for listening today. I cannot wait to catch up with you again soon. If you've loved this podcast, please don't forget to like, share and subscribe because that helps other people find this podcast and get all of the goodness out of it too. This podcast has been produced by Brooklyn Podcasting Studio. If you want to find out more, head online to brooklynpodcastingstudio.com.